0: It doesn't hurt but I know it's there and I know it shouldn't be. Interloper. I've touched it a couple of times already clocking the chutzpah of it. How silently and without any warning it has taken up residence. Uninvited. Nasty. Hello my name is Genevieve and you've just been listening to the opening lines of my memoir, Milkshakes and Morphine, A Memoir of Love and Life, which is what I'm going to be talking about and reading from in this podcast today. Thanks for tuning in. little bit about me first. I'm a second-year technique researcher at the University of Surrey, and I'm doing a practice-based interdisciplinary creative writing PhD. For my creative practice, I'm writing a novel about a crisis of memory, and it's informed by my critical practice, which considers the mechanisms of memory, how we remember and forget. And I also focus on three novels, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, Edward St. Open's Mother's Milk, and Kazio Ishiguro's A Pale View of Hills, and their various treatments of memory, and how my own representations of memory and narrative treatment of it differ from these uh, three writers. It turns out that uh, writing my own memoir paved the way for the novel that I'm writing, uh, which hinges on the pitfalls of remembering and forgetting. It's called uh, Stop Alice, and in it I question, amongst other things, why, despite the fact that many of us share my heroine's longing to forget certain traumas and past uh, difficulties, I look at why memory erasure... Which is of course a kind of post-human idea, I look at why that's not the holy grail we might think it could be. It is, apart from anything else, an ethical and philosophical can of worms. The memoir, Milkshakes and Morphine, was published in hardback in January last year, four months after I started all my academic research. It's just come out in paperback. Now, I'm particularly interested in the tyrannical nature of memory, how it determines our behaviour and our emotions, sort of everything, really, um, and certainly much more than I realised when I was writing the book. What I want to know now is how far, uh, if indeed at all, uh, the deterministic nature of memory undermines the idea that we act with agency. And it was actually by by writing my memoir that I came to understand the full extent of how far memories inform pretty much everything we do, Uh, even though they're mutable, of course, they're changeable, and indeed change each and every time we access them. My memoir, any memoir, really is, I suppose, a crystallisation of memory in action. It embodies the way that the past affects the present, and how of course it shapes our future, even if we can't remember particular memories, even if they're hazy or we think they're uh, inaccurate, uh, unreliable, even if we've uh, buried them under the carpet as it were, or if the memory is so traumatic that we never access it consciously in our daily lives. All of these ideas provide the cornerstones of the novel um, Stop Alice. My heron. Is an artist called Alice and she, poor thing, mistakenly believes she can free herself from her past by sublimating her memories into another form, in her case into uh, an abstract painting. Uh, Her desire to forget turns out to have tragic consequences. But I'm not going to go into that here, that's for another day and, and another conversation about memory. So, for now, I'm going to give you a longer taster of my memoir. As I say, the book is a direct result of the past, my childhood, colliding with the present in very recent years. It's a collision that creates new meanings and new insights during what was an absolute roller coaster of a creative writing process. To summarise the book, Milkshakes and Morphine chronicles my childhood after both my parents died my American father when I was five and then my English mother who had brought us to England after my father died when I was nine she died from cancer Uh, and it looks at how after always doing my best never to look back on my post-parent world I'm forced to do so when a diagnosis of cancer threatens my own sons with being motherless it is my worst fear come true Milkshakes and Morphine is two stories woven into one. then. It's the story of my rackety childhood, or what my older son uh, Ruben calls a series of unfortunate events, and of my cancer, which I call many things, including an excuse to hog the microphones until 4am during uh, karaoke, and to walk away from boring people at parties, if I feel like it, but which I, unlike other people, never ever call a journey. After all you plan journeys and they usually take you somewhere nice, somewhere you want to go. During my treatment Reuben, who was 15 at the time, said to me, so are you going to write about your cancer? has yes, the measure of my ego and to be fair, my background before I went into academia has been in journalism and as a features writer as well as a book columnist, I've always been perfectly happy to write about myself. You name it, whether it's me having fresh hay stuffed down my paper knickers in a spa in the Dolomites or me doing book research for the psychopathic gangster Reggie Cray uh, or me whisper-it-trading writing tips with Jeffrey Archer. So, yes... I'm up for writing about myself, usually. But write about having had cancer? Nope. Too shameful. Hopeless, really. Like being an orphan. I resolved then and there that I was not even going to talk about the cancer if I got better, let alone write about it. But then my illness forced me to look back. It was like short, sharp regression therapy I did not sign up to. I was forced to look back on that past. I'd always done my best to move away from. I even saw my mother dying in the hospice, couldn't get the image of her all bone and dry spider's hair and distended cancer stomach out of my mind. I saw her again when I was imagining how I would break the news of my cancer to my sons. She was right there, in my kitchen, perched on the edge of the sofa in her hospital nighty, like she was the last time I saw her alive. It was during the process of writing up all these experiences, trying to make sense of what I had recalled and how it have had affected me, that I saw certain things for the first time. Some dark truths, but also bright mother love. The love that had been there before the loss. I saw the love when I was little, then its absence, and then the yearning. In the book, I switch between the past and the present in an attempt to show how the hardest thing about the cancer experience, for me, much harder than the punitive treatment, is watching history repeating itself, or at least threatening to do so. Watching myself being lost to my teenage sons, just as I had watched my own mother being lost to me. My son's stories flash before me. There will be the love when they were little, then its absence, and then the yearning. The aim of this reading, which jumps from my childhood to diagnosis day five years ago, is to give you a taste of the collision between past and present that underpins my story. The morning they came to tell us Mother was dead, my sister and I were camping in a tent on the Marzipan lawn. I knew she was dead when my aunt unzipped the door of the tent. It was an act of intimacy, not ordinarily in her remit. Later that morning she took us for a walk down the private gravel road. She extended her clammy hand and I knew I had to take it. Grandma took the other one. That was my first taste of my new state, being hostage to the whims of adults. After father was gone, there had been mother. It had mattered not having a father. It was awkward, different, and no child likes to be different, particularly if the nuns have marked your card and there are some boys in the playground who track you down for speaking in a weird way. I missed him in a not-knowing-what-I-missed way. But my world was essentially still whole. Now mother was gone too, and it had a puncture in it. Out there... In the new world there was nowhere to take cover. We were animals in flight. And now we cut to diagnosis day, 20th of December 2013, the UCLH Macmillan Centre. we take the spiral stairs up to the first floor. The door to the consulting room, the same room in which I first met with Dr. Dish, is open. Only this time, there are four people in the room. One man sitting, one man standing, one young woman standing by the window, and the Macmillan nurse I had seen talking to the couple in reception minutes earlier. So, I have cancer. There are four people in the room. If I had been spared, only one person would be here to give me the results. Desire. All I have ever wanted, want, might want, is reduced to a swiftly calculated single compromise. Let me not have only months to live. I accept the cancer. I accept it and will deal with it with as much grace and fortitude as I can muster. But on the condition that you give me at least six months. Give me more and I will open myself to you. I promise. Nobody moves. They are actors on a stage just as the curtain is raised. Wanting to turn back, I step inside the room. The tableau stirs. The seated doctor points to the chair opposite him. Please, he says. I sit down. He pulls his chair towards mine. How are you today, Genevieve? His knees are less than a foot away from mine. He leans in towards me. This is bedside stuff. I'm fine. He leans in closer. How are you in yourself today? In myself, catatonic with dread, petrified, overwhelmed by a longing that I can feel under my ribs and in my stomach and in my legs to be anywhere but here. I'm fine, absolutely fine the others have not moved. There is only one way to tell you this, the tumour is malignant. Can someone get my husband, please? Of course, there is a shuffle and the man who is standing leaves the room, into the lonely silence, silent tears, course, swelling the surprised riverbanks. My skull is not fit for purpose, it cannot contain my brain and whatever else is in there, it is a seething, steaming, chthonic mass. Richard walks into the room. His face has turned into silly putty. It is ashen and it droops. He sits on the chair that has been placed by my side and puts his hand on mine. A tear falls. Love's messenger. You seem very calm, says the consultant. Well, I say, and my voice tails off. Any questions? am I going to die? If so, when? No, thank you. I nod as the consultant speaks. When I think he has finished, I nod some more to indicate that I have understood that we will get the prognosis in the new year. I take my hand away from Richard's and draw myself up tall. I am ready. Thank you for listening to this extract from Milkshakes and Morphine.